At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to be continuing a sermon series that we began a few weeks ago called The Lord of the New Heaven and the New Earth. This series is walking us through the last four chapters of our Bible. And the, 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 the version that I'm using, it's the last four pages in our Bible, Revelation 19 through 22, as we see where everything is headed. We see the culmination of all things. And this, this series is a part of a number of sermon series that we've walked through inside of 2022 as a church family as we have looked at the book of Revelation. And we have seen from the start that the book of Revelation is a revelation of who? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so again, it's my hope and prayer today that we would have a clearer picture of who Jesus is by looking at a specific section of the Revelation. Today, looking at part five of this particular series in Revelation 21, the first eight verses. But before we read those verses and look at them together, I want to orient us a little bit to the subject matter. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, you know that I began this point of the message by putting a word on the screen that we were going to explore for the rest of our time, and that word was the word hell. Well, today, I want to put a different word on the screen, and that is the word grace. Today, I want to explore the riches of God's amazing grace. Because God's grace is amazing, and what he has provided for those who are in Christ is really something special. And we see, really, in chapters 21 and 22, in the culmination of all things, we see this picture of what God gives us in his grace in eternity. And so, over the next five Sundays, we're going to be looking at that specifically. Um, But as we begin looking at this topic, I want us to think about what we might put before that word grace. Now, we might say amazing grace, but also one of the things that I think we are tempted to do is we are tempted to devalue God's grace. We're tempted to devalue His grace. Now, how do we devalue God's grace? Well, there are a couple of different ways. The first way is a way that that many of us are familiar with and how you might answer the question. If I were to just come up to you on the street and say, how do people tend to devalue God's grace? We typically respond with something like this. Well, we think more highly of ourselves than we should. We devalue God's grace because we say that our salvation is in part, at least, a product of our work because we think our work might be good enough to impress a holy God. And so we diminish God's grace when we say that our salvation is, you know, whether it's 20%, 50%, 80% our effort, and then God just tops off the rest. If that's our understanding of how we are saved, then we are devaluing God's grace because God in his grace delivers a salvation that we can never afford. But there's a second way that we devalue God's grace. And that second way we devalue God's grace is maybe a way we don't think about all that often, but it's still very significant. And that is when we think less highly of the reward. When we think less highly of the reward. If we lose sight of just how amazing what God is giving us in Christ is, then then we might devalue God's grace. So let me put that in an illustration maybe to, to draw these points out in greater clarity. 
Let's imagine that this week you start a new job. And this job is going to be working in some kind of middle management. And let's just say, uh, for easy math, that you will be paid $25 an hour for that job. And your first day, Monday, you're working eight hours. So at the end of day one of work, how much would you anticipate gaining in a wage? I know some of you are going, wait a minute, I was unaware that there was going to be math on this test. Um, So let me just tell you what it would be. It'd be $200. After one day's work at $25 an hour, eight hours of work, you would expect to receive $200 as a wage. And if at the end of the day you got $200, what would you think? I got what was due me. I got what I earned. I got what I deserved. Now, let's expand that a little bit. What if you worked those same eight hours? But at the end of that day of work, you did not receive a check for $200, but you received a check for $200 billion. Now, what would you think? I know some of you are thinking, well, is there overtime available? (laughs) What's time and a half of $200 billion? Or maybe I'm going to show up tomorrow. Day two is going to be awesome. I'm going to show up in style. But the reality is, if you were paid $200 billion, For eight hours of work, all of us would have an understanding that that was a gift from your employer. None of us are worth that. Now, friends, that illustration helps reveal to us these dynamics of God's grace. Because God in His grace, you know what what He says to us in His grace? Our salvation is not on the basis of our works at all. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How is it that we're saved? We're saved after working zero hours. Zero hours. Jesus did the work for us. It's a gift that is offered that we receive in faith. So how do we answer this question of thinking more highly than ourselves? Well, we need to remember that our salvation is not part us, part God. It's all of what God has done for us, and we merely receive that gift by faith. But the second part is also true. Even if we are mistaken and think that our salvation is in part due to our works, the Scriptures paint a picture of what God provides for the saved as not $200 worth of savings, not just a better experience than the lake of fire. No, 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 no. The picture that is painted is greater than $200 billion in a gift. And today, friends, we're going to see and begin to explore the riches of what God is offering us in Christ. And we're going to do that by looking at Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and turn there. I, I want to read these eight verses for us. And then after reading them, I'm going to back up and make a couple of observations today that will help us to understand just how richly we are blessed in Christ. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, friends, in these eight verses, we're going to see a couple of things this morning. What are those things? The first thing I want us to see and do is this. I want us to set sail for the new world. I want us to set sail for the new world, the new heaven and the new earth that Christ has created and prepared for us. Now, we see this at the very beginning of verse 1. It says, Then I I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. When did the first heaven and first first earth pass away? They passed away just before Jesus sat on that great white throne and pronounced judgment on humanity, what we saw last Sunday at the end of chapter 20. Remember, heaven and earth fled away so that there was no place for people to hide before God except in Christ. Jesus sits on the throne and the world that we know goes away. So what is awaiting the other side of that? What is going to happen at the beginning of eternity? Well, Jesus is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Now, that's significant for us to think about because the implications are pretty significant. You know, when we we think about eternity, sometimes we think of eternity that, that our soul will live on. This, this soulless life of ours will kind of float from cloud to cloud. Friends, that's not what the scripture says. That's a Charmin commercial. Floating from cloud to cloud as a bodiless soul is not the future that God has prepared for us. God created us to be a soul married to a body living in relationship with him forever. That requires a physical location. So when this world goes away, a new world is created. And this new world is better in every way. Now, what's interesting is we know inherently that there's something wrong with this world, don't we? I mean, as people who are created in the image of God, as people who have the stamp of, of his law on our hearts at some level, we, we, we look around at the world around us and we see things that are broken. We see violence in the weather. We, we see disasters that happen and occur. We see violence in the created order. And not only that, we see the pain and the effects of sin in the way that humanity relates to one another. So we look around and we know something is wrong with this world and we long for something that is better. I think this is why when people create works of fiction, they always create a world that's a slightly better or bigger version of the world in which we now live. Whether it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, or or, or whether it's some fairy tale existence. 
or the Lord of the Rings in Middle Earth. We think and create worlds that are slightly different, maybe slightly more noble, maybe slightly better. The animals are bigger, more intelligent. They talk and they interact. We, we take what we know and we inherently create in our fantasies things that are just slightly better. That's an indication that we know that something is wrong with the first heaven and earth. God is going to provide a new heaven and earth for eternity that will be better than any galaxy far, far away and is prepared perfectly for us. Now, in light of this, what do we know? Well, I want us to first begin looking at what is not present in this new heaven and new earth. What's not going to be there? Well, as far as the geography of the new heaven and the new earth, there's one thing that is revealed to us, and that is that there will be no sea there, that the sea was no more. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. How can this be a better world if there is no ocean? I mean, how many of you, the ocean is your happy place, right? You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, Mark. Hold on. You're telling me that that God is preparing a place where I can no longer dip my toes in the sand and the water, that I cannot see a beautiful sunset over the horizon of the Pacific? Well, there's no more sun either, but we'll get to that next week. But, you know, when you think about it, when you think about it, this world, the best of this world is inferior to the world that is to come. And when saying there is no more sea, I don't think that what he's saying is there's no more water, there's no more beauty. It's just that the world won't be characterized by the sea. We need to think of the sea not as 21st century Americans that go on vacation to the coast, but I want us to think of the sea as John, the apostle, might have thought of it, who delivers this revelation to us. The sea in the ancient world was a place of separation, It separated people from each other. As a matter of fact, where was Paul when he received this revelation? He was on the Isle of Patmos in prison. What were the walls of his prison? Think about it. What were the walls of his prison? The sea. This revelation comes and says there's going to be no more separation, no more of separating peoples, no more separating people from where, where worship might occur, No more separating people from God. There's going to be no separation in this place. There'll be no sea. Second thing, there won't be. There won't be any stuff. Now, I I don't mean by by stuff, I don't mean there won't be anything physical. There'll be a new heaven. There'll be a new earth. There's going to be a new city. There's going to be all of those things. So there will be things, but there won't be our things. There won't be these things. There won't be any NYC. There won't be any OKC. There won't be any Beijing. There won't be any Moscow or Tehran. There there won't be the things that we know. There won't be a Grand Canyon. There won't be a Yosemite National Park. Now, when I began that list, some of you were going, yeah, there's not that place. But wait a minute, you're taking away the Grand Canyon? You're taking away? Again, the best of this world are less than the worst of the one that is to come. The most beautiful things we see and know will be replaced with something better. What an amazing thought. The former things will pass away so that the new might come in. There also will be no more sorrow. What what an amazing, amazing statement. There will be no more sorrow. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, we live in a world that is marked by those things, don't we? It's marked by death. It's marked by sorrow. It's marked by pain. It's marked by suffering. It's marked by cancer. It's marked by dementia. It's marked by anxiety. It's marked by loneliness. It's marked by regret. It's marked by sin. But friends, there will come a day when those things will be no more. And how will it happen? Because God himself will be the one to dry our eyes and to usher us into the new reality he has prepared for us. What an amazing, amazing statement. What an amazing thought. I had somebody ask me a question after last Sunday's message. I think it was a great question. They came and they said, Mark, how is it that we can have no tears in the new heaven and the new earth? Because if there's a hell and if we know anyone who might end up there, how will we deal with those feelings of regret and, and, and loss? And, and my answer was, I, I, really, I really don't know exactly how it will work. But I know that he will take care of us in a way that will remove that sense of loss. God is preparing a place for us, and he will care for us, for all of us, for our spirits and for our bodies forever and ever. What an amazing thing. In this new heaven and new earth, there will be no more sea, there will be no stuff, there will be no sorrow. But also, there will be no unforgiven sinners. It's interesting what we see in 21 verse 8, this reminder of those who have gone to the lake of fire, having been judged at the white throne judgment. This is a a description of, of those who have rejected Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I've done one of these things, or I've I've committed some of those sins. Does this mean that I am headed to hell? And the answer to that is sadly, yes, if you have not trusted in Christ. God gives us this revelation so that we might repent while we have time, so that Jesus' death might take the penalty for our sins, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might enter into the new heaven and new earth that he has promised us. But when that new heaven and new earth is ushered in, there will not be any who have rejected Christ who will enter into that place. So that is what will not be there. But what will be there? What will be there? Well, one of the things that we see that will be there is the city. Now, this might be surprising to us. It says, I I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I I say this might be surprising because, first of all, there's going to be no sun, there's going to be no ocean, but there's going to be a city. I mean, how many of you are city people? God bless you. There's there's some of you there. I love that about you. But that's not me. And that may not be many of us, especially in this, you know, kind of suburban setting like we are. Cities are not places that we we flock to. We might live outside of a city for a reason. We don't think of cities as 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 great places. They they might be necessary places, but they're places of great challenge. Why? Because there's a lot of people that live there. 
Because there's a lot of people, there's, there's sin. And because there's sin, there's crime. And because there's crime, there's, there's, there's all these consequences. And there's drugs and there's homelessness. And there's, there's all of the challenges that the cities that we know deliver inside of our world that might make us want to, to separate from cities, might make us want to separate from large groups of people. But what's fascinating is when the new heaven and the new earth are described, a prominent feature is a, a city that is coming down. Well, there's some things about this city we need to see and remember. The first thing we need to see is this is a holy city. <laughs> this is not just any old city. This is not the cities that we know. This is a holy city, a perfect city. And this is a city that is described as having been prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I don't know if you've been to a lot of weddings. Um, as a pastor, I get the privilege to be at a lot of weddings. And one of the things that you notice at weddings is that brides really get ready for that day. You know, they take care of their hair. A special person comes in and helps them often. Special makeup for that day. A very expensive dress that they'll wear once for that day. I mean, all of this work and effort goes into that day. Why? Because they want to look their absolute best for their husband on their wedding day. So what's the implication here of the holy city? It's prepared, immaculate, just like that. Don't, when you see city here, don't think of urban blight. Think of perfect community. See, sometimes we think of, of, of eternity, that, that God will give us our own cave, you know, our own cloud, with maybe some kind of eternal version of Netflix that allows us to stream whatever we want. You know, it's kind of this isolated existence. That is not what the Scripture indicates. What is eternity going to look like for us? It's going to look like perfect community. Living not isolated, where we see Jesus once a year, but living together, encouraging one another, serving one another, worshiping with one another, living in the city that God has prepared. There'll be a city. We'll be together. But you know what else is there? So great. God is there. God is there with us in the new heaven and the new earth. As a matter of fact, that is the best part about it, without question. That is the culmination of verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, in other words, don't miss this loud voice from heaven, the voiceover declaring to, to John so that he gets it right to each of us exactly what is happening in this new heaven and new earth. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's God's plan. That's God's desire for us to be united with a resurrected body, living in a recreated world with God himself. That is awesome. And that's where it's headed. Now, when, when, I, when I go through that, you might be thinking, well, what does that really mean? I mean, hasn't God always been with his people? Well, yes, that's always been God's heart. Just think about some of these things, God dwelling with his people. Adam and Eve in the garden, God's walking with them in the cool of the day. In the Old Testament era, they, they build a temple, and the glory of the Lord came and inhabited it as they dedicated that temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. God's presence with his people. When Jesus came to the earth, it says that Jesus came, John 1, 14, and he tabernacled among us. He, he dwelt among us so that we might know what God was like, God's presence with his people. We also see this in the role of the Holy Spirit today in the life of each believer. 
The Spirit resides within our hearts so that we might be described as a a holy temple to the Lord, the Spirit residing in each of our hearts. And not only that, but also the Spirit residing collectively within us as a group of believers as we gather in a special way. So in many ways, God's presence with his people has been a part of the equation from the beginning. That's always been God's heart. But there are limitations to that. There are challenges with that. In the Old Testament era, it was occasionally present and then removed. Even now, though the Spirit sustains with us, we cannot see Jesus face to face. So what we see in the new heaven and the new earth is the heart of God on full display and taken to the next level, where God will physically dwell with his people in a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever. That's why we might accurately say that the best part of eternity, the best part of eternity is not where or what, but who. It's not what's the geography of the land. The only thing we know is that there's no sea. I'm not going to dwell on that. That'd be burying the headline. The fact that God is there is what makes it so special. And not what will we be doing? There's not a ton of data given to that, but the fact that we will be doing it, whatever it is, whatever, wherever it looks like, in the presence of God himself, that is what we need to hang on to and what we need to remember. See, friends, we need to set sail for the new world in our minds today to encourage us and prepare for one day arriving on those shores. Now, as we set sail, I want us to see a second thing. though. I don't want to just create this category, but I want us to go ahead and explore the riches of his grace. Once we land in the new world of the new heaven and the new earth, what are the riches of his grace that are, are demonstrated inside of these verses? Well, we, we see a few of those things as we look at them more closely. First of all, it's interesting, verse 5, he says, He seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. All things new. Jesus not only is going to give us a resurrected body, but he's preparing a resurrected place. Genesis chapter 3 said the effects of the fall affected even the physical components of this earth. Decay was introduced. That one day will be taken care of. Romans chapter 8 says that all creation right now groans in pain, like childbirth, awaiting something better. Jesus says, I'm going to make all things new. One day, this new heaven, this new earth will be birthed. It will be better and I'm going to give it to you in my grace. And he says, you can count on it. Because Jesus says, I am trustworthy, and I am true. In other words, if I promise that I'm going to give a new heaven and a new earth where sorrow is no more and separation is no more, then, then you can bank on it. It's going to happen. That's why he says right after these, this verse and beginning of verse 6, it is done. It's a done deal. It's going to happen. We can bank on it because our God is faithful. And not only is he faithful, he's the alpha and the omega. He is alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet, the first and the last. At the beginning, the time that we know of as the beginning, what happened? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
in the time that is the end that is described in 21, in the end, God created the new heaven and the new earth. God created in Genesis to create the first heaven and earth for us to live in relationship with him. Sin interrupted it. God will create a new heaven and a new earth, and sin will not be allowed to interrupt it any longer. This is God's promise. This is what he has prepared for us. But I want to think more specifically about this little phrase. In this new heaven and new earth, he will give us what we need. So where do we see that concept inside of these verses? Well, when we think of this phrase, he gives, we we see that in verse 6. He says, to the thirsty, God says, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. God will give without payment what we need. It's not a product of what we have earned. It's a product of his grace. It's $200 billion without working an hour. God is granting to us that and even more. He gives to us without payment. It's a product of his grace. And he gives it to us. Now, where do we see us in this passage? Well, a couple of places. But the first place I want to draw your attention to is this word, thirsty. Who does he give this to? He gives it to the thirsty. Now, humanity is a needy species, aren't we? We just are. And, and our thirst maybe is the clearest expression of our level of need. I asked the doctor in the first service um, how long someone can live without water, and their response was roughly three days. That's how needy we are. I mean, we might be able to live without companionship for a long time. We might be able to live without food for weeks, but we can only go without water for about three days. And so it becomes this really great picture of our level of need. And those of us who recognize our need, not just for physical water, but also for things like forgiveness and hope and life and vitality, Those of us who recognize those needs are accurately defined as the thirsty. We recognize our need and we come before our God and we ask him to provide for our needs. So it is us who are identified here in the thirsty. And what does God give to the thirsty? He gives from the spring of the water of life. He gives to to us the spring of the water of life. What is that? I don't know exactly but it is a representation of God providing for all of our needs, all of them. If you can think of a need, know that in the new heaven and the new earth, God will provide for it. It will be taken care of from the depth of his provision. Now, if you saw the thirsty and you thought, well, Mark, that might be a stretch. How do you really know it's us? Well, I want to point you back to this little phrase, the one who conquers at the beginning of verse 7. Now, who is the, the one who conquers? This is a phrase that is repeated often in the book of Revelation. And if you've been with us all year, you might remember that all the way back when we looked at the letters that Jesus wrote to the church, to each of those churches, Jesus said, to the one who conquers, I will give. And we did a little study at that time about who the one who conquers was referring to. The one who conquers is a a reference to all believers in Jesus Christ. Not some believers in Jesus Christ, 
but all believers in Jesus Christ. It, we see that in part because of verses like 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Remember, John was the same John who delivered the revelation, is the one who wrote the book of 1 John. And he says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This word overcomes is the same word in the original as this word conquers. And this is the victory that has overcome, same world, the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So friends, if you have believed in Jesus as the Son of God and are trusting in Him for your eternity and are following Him with your life, this is referring to you. These blessings that are talked about in this passage are referring to you because we are the one who conquers. And the one who conquers, the one who is connected to Christ, will have a heritage this phrase, heritage, might be translated in the version of the Scripture that you're looking at, the word inheritance. It's a good translation. In other words, if we are in Christ, we are set to inherit a new heaven and a new earth and all of the riches therein. This has very much real-world implications. I love a conversation that, that D.L. Moody had with a friend D.L. Moody uh, was an evangelist in America uh, back in the late 1800s, and in 1871, he lost nearly all of his worldly possessions in a fire. And a friend came up to Moody and wanted to talk about that event. This, this happens in life, right? Something bad happens, a friend comes up and wants to encourage, and the, the friend comes up to Moody and says, I hear you lost everything. How did Moody respond? Moody said, you understood wrong. I have a good deal more left than I lost. By the way, friends, that phrase right there applies to each and every one of us, whether we have a lot in our bank account or a little. If we are in Christ, we have way more ahead of us than we might ever lose on this earth. You understood wrong. I have a good deal more than I lost, Moody replied. So his friend said, well, what do you mean? I didn't know you were that rich. I mean, you're a pastor. What do you mean? You lost all of your earthly possessions and you say you still have a lot more? That doesn't make sense to him. In Moody's response, he that overcometh shall inherit all things. Friends, what, what a promise that we have. What a promise. What a hope. And it's anchored to this idea if we are in Christ, we have an inheritance. And what that inheritance implies is that we have become a child of God. And specifically here, he refers to those who have this inheritance as sons. That's not a typo. I do believe he intends this to be men and women, but he uses the word son here intentionally. Why? Because it was the male children who inherited the estate not the female, in, the, in that culture. Whether we are male or female, slave or free, if we are in Christ, then we are considered a son of God and will receive an inheritance. What is that inheritance? It is a new heaven and a new earth. Why is it that we can draw freely from the water of the, spirit, of, of, of the spring of life? Because we have been invited as an heir and a recipient in that world. 
It's Jesus' world, but we are a co-heir with Christ, reigning with him and receiving the blessing that he has extended to us. A remarkable, remarkable thing. So how do we respond to this? Well, a couple of things that I think are critical for us to think about as we respond. First one is this. We need to properly audit our lives. Properly audit our lives. Properly take account to the significance of the things that we are experiencing and going through right now. In order to help us do that, I want to share with you a quote from Charles Spurgeon who said this, We make too much of this poor world, for the trials that now weigh us down will soon vanish like morning dew. We are only here long enough to feel the April shower of pain, and then we are gone, walking among the unfading flowers of endless May. And so, friends, put things in order. A lot to this brief life, it's very brief considerations into everlasting glory, the weight of eternal joy forever and ever. (laughs) The things that we go through right now, the tears that we cry, they are but a morning dew. Let us think about the depths of what God is providing us in eternity. And the second thing, let us also give thanks and praise to God for his gift. Again, another quote to help anchor this idea in, our, in our, our minds, this quote from Johnny Erickson Tata, who says, soon our songs of suffering will be over, but we shall sing of Christ's suffering forever and ever and ever. We will never tire of singing how his suffering and affliction and death secured for us happy delights and pleasures forevermore. Friends, Jesus suffered in time so that we might be blessed eternally. In light of that, let's turn to him and trust him together. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this great truth, the hope that we have found inside of this passage. May we be a people who lean in to trust you and to properly understand that the challenges of this life are but a morning dew compared to the endless flowers of the May of eternity. May we live our lives now in light of where you are taking us. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.